chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. So as you remember in our study that we have been going through since really chapter 5, verse 21, the passage really clear in verse 21 of chapter 5 is to submit to one another, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, out of our fear of Christ, out of our love for Christ, out of our reverence, out of reverence for Christ. And that has been propelling us forward in our study in the finishing of chapter 5 and, and now going to be through, excuse me, chap, verse 9 in chapter 6 on what that looks like, right? What that looks like to, to one another. And so we talked about the husband and wife relationship in the home, how that looks like and the role of that, as well as how marriage has been given to us as a, by God's goodness and God's grace to uh, show us this profound mystery of the gospel. And as we spoke on last week, starting in chapter 6, how children are to obey their parents. Kate, just kidding. Children are to obey their parents, for this is right to honor their father and mother, for this is the first commandment with the promise, as well as then to fathers, to not provoke their children to anger, but to bring them up in discipline of the Lord with a hope the vision for sanctification to, to push them to Christ or to lead them to Christ. To, as we, we talked about last week together, the, the idea of building kindling, putting kindling on a, a fire that is yet to be lit by the Lord. That's the role of, of the fathers and mothers and the parenting and the instruction of their, of their children is to put as much kindling of the gospel around them, praying that the Lord would ignite that, uh, that kindling. We can't do that, but the Lord does. The Lord does. So we are now in uh, verse 5 in chapter 6. So if you all would turn into your scriptures and, and read with me starting in verse 5. I'm going to take a drink real quick while you look there. Verse, fi- uh, verse 5. Bond servants... Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service or as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Let us pray. Father, we pray now that as we open this passage together, pray that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would give me the words to speak to your people this morning that would bring glory to you and more and greater joy and delight in Jesus Christ. Open us, open our eyes, open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start off asking a question. 
what was your least favorite job you've ever had? Now, you don't have to say it out loud. Actually, I don't want you to, because we'll be here forever and we'll get a lot of laughing and stuff like that. But you can imagine, some of them were probably not that desirable, were they? Uh, I, I can tell you, my, my least favorite paying job, like I actually had to pay taxes to, was, um, was I worked in this bar brewery, brewery restaurant as a, as a busboy in, in, in high school. And, uh, you know, man, being a, a, a busboy is not a really great desirable job. And, and the reason is, is because you're constantly cleaning up messes um, after families like mine, you know, now you know, they come in and, you know, leave a disaster and the waiter or waitress just says, oh, look, you get to clean it now, you know. And, and so I would bust these tables, constantly cleaning up messes. The, whole, the, the restaurant smelled like old beer all the time and people liked it because they kept on coming back. The food was good, but they kept on coming back. Um, and, and sometimes even having to do the dishes was, was terrible as well. And of course, every night as I bust those tables, I'm making you know, below minimum wage, hoping that the, uh, uh, the waitresses and waiters would tip out fairly, right? They would actually give me the amount that they, that they owe me. That was their job if I was gonna help them. Uh, they were going to tip out. So not a very desirable, not a very desirable job. And have you guys ever seen the show uh, Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe? I don't think it's on the air anymore, but it's on it's on Netflix. And and you can just by watching that show, the whole show was based upon the premise of of not very desirable work, but somebody's got to do it kind of thing. Right, and so I remember the one episode of uh, one segment that they did was the guy who would drive around in the DOT truck picking up dead deer, and and then of course whatever else they could find. Someone's got to do it, right? I mean the vultures can only do so much, and this time of the year, man, they're getting nailed left and right, right? So hopefully by none of us. Uh, I I remember one episode where they where hunters would bring in their ducks and their geese to this place, and they would defeather them for them. And this machine of this spinning wheel, it's like a grinding wheel, but not metal. It had like uh, some kind of uh, nylon or something. And they would put this bird on this wheel, holding it, hopefully that the wheel would not shoot it out into the chute. And it would just sit there and just defeather the thing. And feathers were just flying all over the place. And, and some of them were even worse that we can't even talk about uh, together in, in a corporate setting, at least. not very appropriate. Um, so the whole premise of that show was to show that, that work, that some jobs are, are not desirable. Some jobs aren't the ones that we want, but somebody has to do them, and someone has to do those things as taking out the garbage, picking up the garbage, cleaning gutters, and things like that. All work, though, is a gift of God, though. And we, we talked about that, I believe, back in chapter 4, that all work is a, is a gift of God. That it's a gift given to us. And so, so we should be thankful for our work, absolutely, and that work should be something we're thankful for, but that doesn't mean that every job is desirable. Our employment, our jobs, our careers, and, and even our, our education into certain fields are, are portrayed to us in our culture that it's, it's all about making money, that our jobs and education, everything is about making money. The whole motivating factor of going to school and the job and all those things is all about making money. And of course, that's important. We, we need money to survive, and it's the Lord's provision for us. But what we see in our passage this morning, that, that all jobs, even the ones who are, that are desirable and not so desirable, 
There is a greater motive underneath all of it that as Christians we could see and we can be motivated by. And that is the purpose of all work, no matter what it is, is to please our Master, Jesus Christ. So no matter if your job stinks or not, that it is our Master, Jesus Christ, to whom you serve. To whom you serve. And that He is sovereign over that work. He is sovereign over that, over that job. And so with that perspective, and I think that's the, the underlying perspective that's being sent here, as well as some cultural things that we're going to address in just a, in, in, in just a minute, is, is it completely changes our view and our aspect of, of work. It changes our, our posture toward, toward work. Because our jobs are given to us for His glory. During the, during the Reformation, there was a renewed emphasis on the, the, the priesthood of the believer, the, the sainthood of the believer. We, we talked about that in our, a year ago on our beginning discussion in, in Ephesians. And, and they, they taught that, the, that the one lives out their calling in this life through their vocation. And that each person is capable in their vocation to give glory to God in that job. Whatever that may be. And the Reformation brought about this renewed understanding and this new confidence in Scripture that gave the, the church this firm trust in the sovereignty of God in all aspects of their life so that they can look at the, the most meaning, meaningful tasks or the meaningless tasks or the menial tasks in this world and they can still give glory to God for that God has given them a job most, uh, most importantly the, to, to provide for His family but also even in those mundane tasks, whatever it may be, changing diapers, washing dishes, or whatever it is, are all given by God for God. As it means, as a blessing to all of humanity. Martin Luther said, in regards to the Lord's Prayer, he says, give, in the Lord's Day, or in the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, he says, that he, he says in regards to that, he says, remember how God normally, I'm going to get to the quote in a minute, but remember how God normally provides bread. Right? So the prayer, give us this, give us our, this day our daily bread. How does God normally provide prayer or through, through bread? How does he normally provide bread? He, through farmers? Through people who transport the bar, farmer or the, the bread or the wheat? The bakers? And then the retailers? So the, the, the blessing of that provision of our daily bread comes through all these different levels. And for us, the retailers, we go to Walmart or wherever that may be, and we receive that. That is through this food chain of which God has provided in His sovereignty, in His plan. Now to the, to the Luther quote. He says, What is our work in field and garden, in town and house, in battling and ruling to God, but the work of children, through which he bestows his gift on the land and a house and everywhere. Our works are God's masks, behind which he remains hidden, although he does all things. See simply that God is working behind all of that. That God is working in all of our jobs. So, so every one of our jobs, we can live out for the glory of God. Our work is greater than it may seem. As menial the task or as difficult the task, 
as toiling our tasks, as the thorns and thistles grow up in our tasks, they all have meaning. And there's a purpose behind it, and that is for the glory of God. And I think one of the, one of the weapons that the enemy has used against us is to break the, that connection. To break that connection into the thinking that, that life can be disconnected from one another. That faith and normal life are not the same. And that's completely incorrect. There is no separation between the sacred and the secular. What we do in this life, in our jobs, and in our calling can be used to the glory of God, and it does. What a perspective. What a change in, in work. What a motivation and maybe a, a, a laziness or even an attitude of, I, I don't want to be there. It takes away meaninglessness. It takes away the, the only purposes for money. It takes away the dissatisfaction. It takes away the discontent and replaces it with deep meaning. Now, before we really get too much into this kind of application of instantly looking at this passage and uh, automatically assuming that it's just for employers, employees, we, we must not miss the connection or, or what, who he's really addressing here. Just as before we saw in chapter 6 how he was addressing children and parents, he is now addressing other areas of the household, and that was the slaves and masters, slaves and slave owners. And this is part of the, the, like I said, part of the the household that is here. Now remember, picture picture this with me. He's addressing the church, like, so as we have assembled here this morning, they they read this letter to the church, and they address specifically children, they address parents, they address previously husbands and and wives, and now even included in the congregation is slaves and masters. And and these slaves, they were not in the back, they weren't waiting outside by by the horses, or they weren't waiting outside, they weren't in the back, they weren't ones who weren't seen, but if they were members of the church and part of the church, they were a part of the body, sat amongst them, sat right next to their masters as equals. As equals. Can you imagine that in in congregations where there were masters and there were slaves that were attending and both were in Christ, brothers in Christ, fellow church members, that there could have been, there could have been a slave who was an elder of a church and a master who was not? Such counterculture. Talk about scandalous. That leaders of the congregation could even be slaves. But the question that comes to mind when we read a passage like this is why didn't Paul just abolish slavery? If he knew that this was taking place, why didn't he just abolish it and just say, Masters, free your slaves, be done with it? an abomination before the Lord and talked about sin and, and, and talked about the, the mystery of the gospel in that and, and, and how freeing the slaves pictures the gospel and all those great things. Why didn't he just abolish or outlaw slavery? Well, we're going to answer that question. You see, slavery to us, and this is where we have to correct our understanding a little bit as Americans because our understanding of, of slavery has primarily been uh, defined for us through American history through the lenses of American history. And as 
complex and as massive a scope slavery was in America, the transatlantic slave, uh, slavery, was, uh, was primarily motivated, was primarily motivated racially. And we know that. We, we know that. Primarily, it was, ra- it was motivated racially, and it was also lifelong. It was lifelong. It was, it was also generational, once owned, always owned, including the, the children of, of slaves. And this practice of slavery is just gross and sinful, and we should detest that, that time period. We should not like that. We should not look to that as a, as a good time, but that was a dark part of our, of our history with consequences that we still face even today. But slavery in the first century looked significantly different. Different in the sense that it was not primarily racially motivated. It wasn't all of a sudden there was one race and this whole entire race had to be slaves. Couldn't be nothing else. It was not primarily racially motivated. Also, slavery did not have to be lifelong. It wasn't lifelong. Or it also did not have to be multi-generational, meaning children of slaves did not have to be slaves. The primary motivation of slavery in the first century was economy. It was about money. It was, it was about money. It was about paying off a debt. It was slaves who were in extreme poverty or people who were in extreme poverty. They could sell themselves into slavery. It was one way in which someone became a slave or if they became a, a debtor in such a way they couldn't pay their debts, they could be put into forced slavery. This is primarily how people became slaves. Poverty, debt. There was also abandonment. There was abandonment. Children would be put into slavery as well. If parents, were, if parents abandoned them or parents could sell their children into slavery, still wicked. So I'm not trying to paint the picture of slavery in the first century being awesome, because it wasn't. It was terrible. But generally, generally, most slaves by the age of 30 were free. Were free. They paid off their debt, and they were, their, their master, their owner, would emancipate them. And when they were emancipated, they were often given Roman citizenship. In fact, a former slave could also become governor. In the book of Acts, Paul goes before Felix, the Roman governor. Felix himself was a former slave who bought his freedom, paid his debt, or whatever it was, and became raised up to to be a governor. And when they were free, they had skills. They had skills. They had, they had something that they could do. And slavery was so widespread in the Roman Empire, Roman Empire, estimating over 60 million slaves. That totally blows out what we had. Totally blows out. In fact, what, what it was, the city of Ephesus, the, the estimate is somewhere around a third of the city was, was slaves. And slavery was, was in every part of society, every part of culture. They weren't just servants who brought food. They just weren't working the fields. They were bankers. They were counting money. They were keeping records of stuff. They, they had real positions of, of authority. They were virtually in every area of life. They pretty much did all the work. They pretty much did all the work. 
So slavery in Rome was different. First century was different than what we would remember, but it was still dehumanizing. It was still ugly. It was still difficult. Masters still could abuse severely or mistreat their slaves, even kill them if they wanted to be. Their lives were still harsh. They were still cruel. But the reality is is that their circumstances of slavery in the first century all depended upon their masters. It depended upon their owners. Which is why this passage comes back in verse 9 and addresses masters. Now, now we are to oppose slavery. We, we oppose slavery. As Christians, we oppose slavery, and we oppose every form of it. So the question goes back to what I asked just a few minutes ago, is why does it seem, as the New Testament seems so, so silent, or why didn't Paul uh, um, you know, the, abolish slavery, in the church at least? Well, here's some reasons. First one is pragmatically. Christians were, in the first century, they were insignificant. They were insignificant people to the empire. And as an unlawful, unrecognized religion, they were powerless. So what could Paul do in a sense of his writing rebellion change such an institution of 60 million slaves and a third of the population as, master, as, as laborers into doing all the work? Historically, we see that slaves were constantly being freed. Sociologically, conditions in Rome were also changing, as all cultures do, with many humanitarian changes theologically. I think this is the most important one, that theologically the the, the gospel message is not a social gospel to change. To change social injustices. It doesn't. It's It's not, that's not the purpose of the gospel message to just go after social injustices, primarily. I believe it, it, it does in the sense, but what the gospel does change, it transforms and it regenerates people through the preaching and teaching of the gospel, and that's what Paul did. He evangelized people, and then when that happened, culture changed, such as in the city of Ephesus. That's why they had riots in, in Ephesus, because the people were casting off their idols. They were ca- casting off sin in such a way where, where sin was institutionalized, was failing economically, and so they rioted against Paul, and they rioted against the church. See, in the, 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 what the gospel does, it changes our hearts in such a way that it begins to root those things out. So primarily what Paul was doing and theologically was preaching the gospel in such a way that the Spirit would change people, the Word of God would change people, not just blanketly making commands. He cared more for their hearts. He cared more for their joy and the true master. And so the Bible opposes slavery. The Bible opposes slavery all all over Scripture. We don't, we don't have to necessarily dig too far to, to, to see that, where, where, the, where the Bible really goes after it. But the, God, the, the gospel undermines the institution of slavery, and that's what we see, I think, Paul doing underneath all of it, is he's, he's preaching the gospel in such a way that it begins to undermine this institution of slavery. And this is what he's doing in, in this passage to undermine it. Right? So Ephesians 5, 1, be imitators of God 
as God, right? Be imitators as God, as children of God. And who is God? God is the father of the fatherless. He's the champion of widows. He's a God of justice. He's a God of compassion. He stands against the oppressors and he cares for the vulnerable. The character of God, if we're to be imitators of him, is to then do what's right and then stand for what is right. And if God is these things, then then we are going to put those away as well. I think one of the greatest examples as well as we see in in the Scripture is the example given to us in the book of Philemon. Paul writes a letter to this man Philemon who is a who is a slave owner, and particularly a slave owner of a man named Onesimus. Onesimus fled his master. He ran away. And in God's providence, they met, and by God's grace, Onesimus came to the Lord, changed heart, made anew. And Paul urges Philemon in the letter to take back Onesimus, to take back Anesimus, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. As a beloved brother. That changes it. Then, then that change it for Onesimus. They no longer can look at this man as just property, but to look at him as a beloved brother, loved by Christ, as Philemon is loved by Christ. And this is far from the culture. This is far from the culture. It reminds me of the line from one of my my favorite Christmas songs, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Anybody know what song that is? Think about it. One of my favorite songs. Why? Because this is what the gospel does. It undermines evil systems such as this. It undermines it. And it undermines it because he's going after the community. It starts in the community of the church and in in us. It starts in Christians for these things to, to change. Not by protest, not by civil unrest or rebellion or revolution, but but through the church. And in the church, in us, as the gospel changes us, as it changed them, changed the hearts of the slaves and has also changed the hearts of the masters. It lit a fuse that destroys the institution of slavery. And it did. Took centuries, but it did. William Wilberforce in England. In the United States, it was motivated by Christians, churches. The abolition of slavery was led by Christians motivated by the change of the work of the gospel. This guy treats, he encourages people to, address, to treat one another, slaves, masters, if we treat them, to treat each other as they would treat Christ. I mean, in each, each verse that we see, verse 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, there's an appeal, there's a word there that, that points them back to Christ every single time. Master, Lord, Christ. To point them to, their, to, to where their real authority lies, and that is in Christ. And as we are to treat Christ, then that's how we treat one another. 
So absolutely, he could have commanded them to free the slaves, but he didn't. I think what he opted to even more was not just an external conformity, but an internal conformity to Christ-likeness. To be more like Christ. To promote unity in this way. That there's one truth, one faith, and that this truth, one truth, one faith, this doctrine will eventually undermine it. And he knew that. And it does. So this is what the gospel reminds us here to the slaves or to the master that we all once were slaves. We were all in bondage to sin. We were all enslaved blindly even to our very death. We were blinded and in bondage. And then unlike every slave in the first century, we could not purchase our own freedom. We could not buy our way out. We couldn't work our way out. We couldn't come up with a plan. There's no amount of righteousness that could free us from these bonds. What we needed was a Redeemer. We needed someone to purchase us. We needed a Savior. And not just anyone. We needed a perfect, sinless Savior. And as he's t- preached to us and since the beginning of the book, is that one is the Son of God who took on flesh, Jesus, to break the bonds of sin and to break the bonds of death. And that's the message. That's the message of good news that is transforming masters and slaves in this passage. Transforming them from one degree to the next, one step at a time, and eventually it's the destruction of all slavery, ultimately. Because the question really we should be asking is what freedom does anyone really have if they are still enslaved to the flesh? Slave or free. And so to the slaves, he says, work unto Christ. He says, work unto Christ. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service or people pleasing or people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or as he is free. So the slave, as they obey their master, the perspective is that they are is, is the same perspective that we all should have, and that is Christ is our master. As you obey your master, you are obeying Christ. You imagine saying that in public today? You imagine these kind of words going over well? I mean, we're already indicted this way that the, well, the, the Bible's not true because Paul didn't go after slavery. Yeah, he did. He went after the one that every man is in. Be obedient as Christ is your master. That's the motive. That is the, that is the, the motive to glorify Christ as they, as they work respectfully. You see that in verse 5. How they work respectfully by 
fear and trembling. About a fear and trembling, which points us back to chapter 5, verse 21 again, to submit to one another out of reverence or fear for Christ. Out of reverence for Christ as He is their Master. They glorify Christ by working wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly, sincerely. Sincerely to do the will of God from their heart. From their heart. You see, the, the greatest problem in someone's life, and in our life as well as in slaves or whoever they were, or whoever they may be, the greatest problem in someone's life is their hearts. Is we need an internal transformation. We need something completely new from outside of us to make us new. And the same temptation even for slaves to be, to be lazy, to blame their masters, to be people pleasers, to be them-centered. They needed a heart transformation. And so we work, or the slaves work, by, by working wholeheartedly to trust and believe in the sovereign God over their lives and that Christ is their master. To glorify Christ by, by working willingly. We see that in, in verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. That their work is not to be done begrudgingly, loathingly. We talked about this last week with, with children, that they are to obey and honor. A lot of times children can be obedient. Sometimes they forget to honor and set their attitude. They'll do it, but they're doing it because they're fearful of maybe a consequence and they're huffing and puffing and they have a bad attitude. In the same way, in the same way we do our work, we work in obediently, willingly as to the Lord and not to man. And this will change our view of work. We glorify Christ or slaves glorify Christ by working expectantly. Look at verse 8. You see verse 8? See how amazing this is? Can you imagine the encouragement that, that comes to the slaves to see that not only are they working as unto the Lord, but the Lord sees their work and He does not forget their obedience. He does not forget their faithfulness and obedience to their, to their masters and that He will give them back their due reward that He sees that. You see this eternal perspective of work that it's not just for the, the, the here and now, but it's eternal. It's, it's the don't, don't just look at your circumstances here, but look at the day of judgment. Look all the way to then. Have an eternal mindset that Christ will reward you based upon your present faithfulness. That your reward as, an, as a slave or your reward as an employee is not just a paycheck but it's being faithful and finding joy and being obedient to the Master, giving Him all the glory. It's the same way He dresses slaves, He dresses the Masters now. And the same way, treats your slaves as you would treat Christ. We mentioned how countercultural this, this is. Countercultural in the sense that the, the slave and the Master could sit next to each other in church and worship together as, 
as equals, as brothers, as sisters in Christ. And these exhortations that we see here in this passage, in chapter in verse 9, I think continues that transformation, that, that, that countercultural idea where it's changing, where it's life-changing even for the master. The practice mutuality, to treat your slave the same way as, you, as, as, uh, as the slave was to treat them, meaning to honor Christ. It gets really practical there to, to avoid hostility, to stop threatening them, to stop threatening them. So, so remember that, that these people were their, were their property and they can do whatever they want, but what he's saying is stop you manipulating them because you cannot manipulate Christ with threats and violence, so neither do the same with, with servants. Can, can you see the undermining taking place there? That the authority that the master now has over his slave is not an ultimate authority? That the master is no longer God over the slave? It's undermining that authority. To avoid hostility. Can't manipulate. Don't manipulate them. To live with a Christ-centered accountability. Knowing that he who is both their master is yours also in heaven. Masters are to, to know who and what their master is, Jesus. And this master is of, uh, that is Jesus is also the same master as the, as the slave. So he knows, masters, that if, you are, if you're cheating them, he knows that if you are ugly to them, he knows if you're taking advantage of them. To live with a Christ-centered accountability and then last, remember God's impartiality, that there's no partiality with Him. Under Roman law, there was partiality. Under Roman law, there was partiality toward the powerful, toward the wealthy. And this is the idea of where, where, where privilege comes from. That word, that word privilege, it means a, a, a separate law. It means those who are privileged live by a separate law. And, and just a side historical note, that's what's so revolutionary about the American experiment, was that we could live in a land of laws, that all men are created equal in the eyes of God, and therefore they are all accountable to these laws. Not a special class. Not a special class. And it totally changed history, right? American, it totally changed history. But back in Roman times, there were special laws. You were privileged. Not based upon because you were a human, because all men are created equal in the eyes of God, with inalienable rights, but because you were born of a certain family, or a certain heritage, or you have a certain amount of money, or you have a certain job that you, you have. So there's partiality all throughout Rome. But not with God. But not with God. Where it really counts and where it really matters is there's no partiality with God. And this is the, the perspective of masters, is that He is just. That He is just. And so we're not slaves. We're not slave owners. 
We're not slaves. We're not slave owners. And so we can apply these principles here to us as employees, as employers. And the reason why we can apply these principles to, uh, to us is not because we're not slaves or, or because we're, we're workers and we're em- employers, but look how in their conditions Paul is applying these principles to them. How much more then can we apply these same principles to us? To where we, where we don't live in those conditions. We don't have those same conditions as they do, but how much more can we seek to live them out as employees and employers? Yeah, your job may stink, your boss may be an unfair jerk, but guess what? You're not a slave. So absolutely we can apply these, these principles. You're not property. You can change your condition. You can change your, your job. The idea is for all of us to remember that we have the same boss, and that is Christ. That Christ is our master. So just as slaves can glorify, can glorify Christ, employees can glorify Christ. We can glorify Christ in, in, in how we work. And how we and how we and how we work through Christ, how we work, we can glorify Christ because this perspective changes. This perspective changes that we're not just working for the paycheck, we're not just working for the man, we're working for our master in heaven who is good. And we could trust in him. We could trust his sovereignty. We could be content. We could be content. Let us work like Christ. Let our work reflect who our master is. Let us work like Jesus. Let's work hard. Let's work faithfully. Let's work honestly. Let's let's work with integrity. Not by the way of eye service and as men pleasers or people pleasers, but as servants to Christ. I I firmly believe that, that Christians, people who claim to be Christians, should be the best workers, and the best employees out there. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the case anymore. That you can't necessarily guide that anymore. I think it's because we believe that idea, once again, of the sacred and the secular, that I can be diligent in my my Jesus spiritual thing, and I can be lazy in everything else. Christians should be the best workers, the best employees, because we work like Him and we work for Christ. It means we do the best work we can do. John Stott said in a, in a quote of uh, looking at this verse, he said, It is possible for the housewife to cook a, meal as, uh, cook a meal as of Jesus Christ we're going to eat, or to spring clean the house as if Jesus were the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients, and for nurses to care for them, for shop assistants to serve customers, for accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters, as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. We can work for Jesus in all of this. We can see, and you just apply whatever, whatever it is that, that you do. We can do that for Christ, as if we are serving Christ Himself, and to do it good, and to do it hard, and to do it at the, the best and the highest level of which we are capable of doing. 
In the same way as that applies to the employees, it also applies to, to the employers. That through Christ, like Christ, and for Christ. This has a sense of change as it talks to speaking to the, to the slaves, as it changes their perspective, that their master is Jesus. The same thing is for the employees, that your master is Jesus. You are just a steward of that business. You are just a steward of those employees. So respect your employees. Be fair to them. Be consistent with them. Treat them as you would treat Jesus. See your God-given role not only to provide a service of, for the community and not only a, 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 the service of providing for those who, who work for you, but also working for their good. I, I could talk about this particular point, I think, for a while. Not because I've had bad bosses. But I'd see that if our, if our economy, in a sense, if, if, if Christians would see this, this way of of, of how they master, how they lead, how they do things to make them better for their employees, I, I think we would see much less turmoil, much less strife between, between people and between people groups. There wouldn't be such animosity between the employee and the employer. When I worked at UPS, it was the worst I've ever seen. I've never, I've never seen so many people who were discontent by making $15 an hour and getting their education completely paid for and 100% of their, their uh, health insurance paid for and, and they got vacations, paid vacations. I've never seen people so discontent. It's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. You see, underneath this passage this morning, it's not just about being better bosses or better employees. It's to remember the gospel it's to remember the gospel and that the gospel is not just trying to make you a, a, a better person. It is transforming you from the inside out. So the question this morning, I think, once again, this passage is also asking is, is, is Jesus Christ your master? Is he your master? And I'm not just asking, is he your, is he your savior and lord? I'm asking, is he your, is he your master? Is he your lord? Is he the one in whom you serve? When you study for your exams this week, young men, is you doing it unto Christ? When you get up and go to the office and you're faithfully working at the office, is it unto Christ? Is he your master? The most important thing about us is not what we do or even really how we do it. It is who we are doing it unto. Jesus. That is the most important thing. That is what matters the most. Is He our Master? And that is the real meaning behind all of our work. It's the real meaning. It, does, it doesn't give us identity. Because all that could be taken away. And then what do you got? That could be taken away. Then, then what do you got? rather know our purpose in this life as well as in our jobs is to serve our real master and give him glory. Consider this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul says this. He's comparing his earthly circumstances with the eternal realities. In verse 6, he says this. As sorrowful, or verse 10, I'm sorry, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
as poor, yet making many rich, as nothing, yet possessing everything. Is he a psycho or what? Is he nuts? Is he schizophrenic? I mean, what's, what's going on here? How can you say that you're sorrowful, but yet you're always rejoicing, or that you're poor, but you're making many rich, and you have nothing, but yet you possess everything? Wow, how does he have this perspective? He has this perspective because he's confident in his master, that his master is, is sovereign over his life, and that the sovereign hand of, of God is over all things in his life, so that when he is sorrowful, he still can rejoice because Jesus is over his life. So let us be like Paul in this way, transformed by the gospel, working in us that we believe and trust in the Lord, that we can be content in all circumstances so that we can say from the depths of our hearts like the Apostle, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.21, for to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. To free us from slavery, the slavery to sin and death, and to bring us into this loving relationship with the Father. No longer as slaves, but as sons. He is the obedient servant, and He is the best master. And He is the Sovereign Lord. Brothers and sisters, in our work and in all things in this life, look to Him and live. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord, for Your Word. And I pray now that as we respond together, would You help unravel maybe even the, the selfishness of our work, the materialism of our work, would you unravel in us the, maybe even the jealousy, the anger, the strife in our work, and that we would look to our Master who is good, and you would help us to be content in these things, to trust in you. Thank you for freeing us from sin and death, taking us out of the bonds of slavery to it, and making us your own that our identity is not in what we do, but who you are, that we are in Christ. And it is in that name we all pray. Amen.